The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and let me say again, while it, since it is the last time, that I am deeply grateful for having had this opportunity to spend three days on the campus here to meet several of you who are students. I didn't get to meet as many as I should have liked to have met, but I did meet a goodly number. I made new acquaintances. I re-established acquaintance. There's a fellow like John Gritter there. He took me out for dinner yesterday and a lot of other good old friends. Herman Moose sits over there. He got me to go to Calvin originally in about 1914, and I owe him a debt for that. So there are a lot of good faces here. And then, of course, the younger faces are always better than the older ones. <laughs> well, I think we have, in these trials and t- days, pulled together those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who together love the Reformed, historic Reformed faith. It is more obviously our task to take the leadership not in any cocky fashion as though we know it all, not in such a spirit, but because of the fact that God has entrusted us with the understanding of his word that he has not given to many others. Now what I would like to do this morning, as the time permits, is to deal first of all briefly with Morton White's book toward reunion in philosophy. That's a very brief matter. Then with John Dillenberger, who writes a book on Protestant thought and natural science, who takes a complete survey of the relationships of modern science to modern theology. He is a theologian, but is very familiar with modern science. And he has also other books. But then with Daniel Day Williams of Union Theological Seminary in New York, who writes a book, What Theologians Today what are theologians today thinking? And he is, of course, a man from Union in New York, and he takes a complete survey of the picture. And there is then John Macquarie, who is also of Union in New York, and he has several books in which he takes survey also, Philosophy of Religion, Christian Existentialism, and the Scope of Demythologizing. And then I'd like to say a few words about Wolfhard Pannenberg and finally about Jürgen Moltmann, who writes on this theology of history, which is now just now so popular. And then I'd like, if possible, to say a few words of how we as Christians ought to approach this situation. Now, I would invite you to ask questions at the conclusion so that we may have a free-for-all discussion. In his book, Reunion, philosophy, Morton White asks this question, how do we go from where? Now, how do you like that sort of question? How do we go from where? He doesn't know where he is, and he knows that he doesn't know where he is. 
that modern man doesn't know where he is and who or doesn't know who he is basically and how can he ask then about where you should go if you don't know in the first place who you are where you are how can you find direction in other words there is in his thinking and he represents as he thinks the various modern schools of philosophy a con absolute conviction that no man can possibly know where he is that there is the principle of utter and ultimate contingency which underlies Kant's critique of pure reason as Norman Kemp Smith, Smith puts it in his in his commentary on on Kant and that therefore it is not possible since man himself has is a white cap on an o on a wave of an ocean which is bottomless and shoreless and since he disappears again into the blue when the storm stops who is he where is he going he does not know well as we now turn to the question then of theology with John Dillenberger we ask the question that White asked, where, how do we go from where in theology? In other words, modern theology is basing itself upon modern science, not in the sense that it says it must know all about science first before it can construct its own point of view, but it wants at all costs to be in consonance with modern science. Well, Dillenberger says you can do that fortunately because there has been a revolution in science as over against the older pre-Kantian approach of Bacon and Kepler and other men before Kant there has been a revolution in philosophy and there has therefore also been fortunately a revolution in theology and these revolutions are all of them essentially he says the same revolution now characteristic of this revolution is the fact that all of them are anti-metaphysical now you say is that good or is that bad isn't that what the boys ask is it good or is it bad well dr crumiger asked me yesterday must we return to metaphysics no we mustn't return to metaphysics we're glad that people are anti-metaphysical if you want to put it that way negatively but you see they as it were, combine what they call metaphysics, Greek metaphysics, with historic Christianity. We think that we get our historic Christianity from the self-revelation of God in the self-identifying Christ who speaks in the scriptures and that he himself pretends to be and is for us the light that lights up all other things in this world. Now, therefore, it is modern theology that is in accord with modern science and with modern philosophy in saying this in effect there cannot be such a God as Luther thought of or as Calvin thought of and we might add as Kuiper or Bavink or as Warfield or Voss or Machen or Berkhoff thought of there cannot be it isn't a question first of all does such a God exist does he probably exist Paul Tillich as you know says there cannot be a God who is an entity among entities even if he's the greatest entity the original entity that causes all enti other entities as long as he is an entity has being has personality he can't be beyond because then we can know him in terms of the same categories of causality and substance that we use for an interpretation 
of other facts, so God must be wholly other. Now that, of course, comes sent first of all from Immanuel Kant's, as far as the modern point of view is concerned, that that realm of it, that other realm, which today is usually, frequently at least, called the I-Thou dimension, the person where person-to-person confrontation takes place, that dimension of it, you cannot say anything by means of concepts, the Griffe, by which you manipulate the I-It dimension. There's a great deal of talk nowadays about the non-objectifiable ego. I was at a conference at Drew Seminary three, four years ago, and you had Fritz Bury there, you had Heinrich Ott, the successor of Karl Barth, you had a number of other Germans, as well as outstanding leading theologians of this country, for instance, James Robinson. Now, they all talked about the non-objectifiable ego, and it was taken for granted that you must have this non-objectifiable ego. What is meant by that is, of course, that he is absolutely free. He is not involved in the ayat dimension. If he were to that extent, he would be an object of knowledge and you could conceptually say something about him and then he wouldn't be free. He must be non-objectifiable. Well, a great deal is made of that in our day and John Dillenberger in his book, in his very comprehensive and thorough survey of recent theology in relation to recent science and philosophy, makes the point that existentialist philosophy has done the greatest of service to modern theology because it has asked the question, who is man? What is man? And it has, for the first time, so to speak, discovered who man is. Well, it has discovered that man is himself in terms of himself without relationship to this I-it dimension. He is somebody who can say I in terms of himself and in terms of himself alone. Now it is this existentialist philosophy that is at the basis of much of modern, the recent modern theology. Now we must go on hurriedly to go beyond ju- John Dillenberger to Daniel Day Williams, who writes this book and asks, what are present day theologians thinking? Remarkable is the fact that he argues in almost identical fashion with John Dillenberger to the effect negatively in the first place that you cannot hold the historic orthodox Christian position. That isn't worthy of a moment's consideration even. I'm not overstating the case in the least. They take it for granted that to speak of a God who has clearly revealed himself in history and in nature, as Calvin has it in his Institutes, on the basis of Paul's statement that man knows God because God is clearly present to him and that Christ came into this world in history at a date in history on One day he died, was crucified, and was three days later, was arose from the dead. This sort of thing can't happen here. That doesn't mean that nothing of the sort happens in this this world of history, as they call it. Oh yes, something happens, and the new quest for the historical Jesus is trying to discover something that seems to have been lost 
in the case of Bart and Boltman, they say. But in a moment we'll come to that. Now then, the first main point is that it is existentialist philosopher, Martin Heidegger in particular. Now you know his famous book, Sign on Side, influenced, uh, greatly influenced, Bultmann in his construction. And you know that Bultmann says we must demythologize the New Testament. And by that he says, in that those days, people thought there were three-storied universe. There was earth and heaven above and hell beneath. Well, that's myth. We must demythologize that. Well, does he mean to do what the modernists did in their day, as it were, get rid of the whole of the Christian message? Oh, no. He wants to retain what he calls the kerygma, the gospel message, but he wants to restate it in terms that the modern man who, ha who is the existential man who understands himself in terms of existential philosophy, that he may understand this and that it speaks to him in terms of his categories. Now, it is therefore that he writes on existential philosophy and its influence on the various different theologians. Now, Dillenberger goes on with this in great detail, but Daniel Day Williams also does. Daniel Day Williams' book is a very small book, relatively speaking, and he, his general approach, like that of Dillenberger's, is that there is a holy other God. Now, that's Karl Barth's view, that was Kierkegaard's view, that was, of course, the numinous, not the numino of Kant, but the numinous of Otto, das Heilige, the holy, the holy other. Well, then, if that holy other is so holy other, how can you ever get in touch with it? How can you ever think of it as having any contact with this world at all? You know how Karl Barth solves it. First, in his earlier, earliest book, the Römerbrief, he said that God touches this world as a tangent touches the circle. Dr. Caspar Wister Hodge one time at Princeton met me on the street. He said, Van Til, I've just read a Dutch book, and it speaks of andekeskietenis, well, you tell me what he means. I says, I'll be glad to do that, Dr. Hodge, if you'll tell me what the Germans mean by an die Geschichte, nicht in die Geschichte. You see, he was trying to catch me, as some of these profs have a way of doing. <laughs> Namely, it was just a matter of difference of language. An die Geschichtenis, an die Geschichte, in die Geschichtenis, in Geschichte. Well, Hodge couldn't tell me. I couldn't tell him. I don't know today because I do not think it is an intelligible notion, and I do not think that anybody knows those who speak of it any more than those who do not speak of it. Not that they aren't brilliant enough. I don't know of any more brilliant minds than we've had in recent times, but I don't think it's an intelligible notion. When you separate Geschichte and History, that holy other, world, the numinous, the nominal, the holy, the ganzandra, then how can you say about it anything in terms of this world? Now, when they stress that aspect, then they say, well, revelation is not a matter of information. And then the fundamentalists come in for some discussion. 
And the fundamentalists stand in this case for the same position that, for instance, Bob and Carper, Warfield and others, all of us, also believe in a direct revelation of God available in history. Not that we can comprehensively understand it, but that nevertheless we truly know and we can rest our hearts upon it for this life and for the life to come. Now, negatively, then, Dillenberger and Day Daniel, Daniel Day Williams are in complete agreement on this, and positively, they are also in agreement in making this claim that existentialist philosophy can tell you who man is. And Paul Tillich, as you know, says that philosophy asks the proper questions. It can ask the proper questions. It only take, it takes theology to answer these questions. Well, of course, if you can ask a proper question, you've already got the proper answer. Philosophy outside of Christ cannot ask the proper questions. Therefore, it cannot ask or find the proper answers. Well, these men are therefore in agreement. And then there is John McQuarrie, a brilliant, relatively young man, who writes a great deal. He has a work, 20th Century Religious Thought. He has another work, Studies in Existential, Christian Existentialism, and a third book on the scope of demythologizing. Now, he's a great admirer of Bultmann. He's a great admirer of Paul Tillich. Well, he is, in short, a modern theologian. All of these men are going beyond Bart, beyond Bultmann, beyond Tillich. In other words, what we're dealing with this moment is what is more recent than Karl Barth and Paul Tillich and Bultmann and Brunner and Niebuhrs, the two Niebuhrs, the two older Niebuhrs. The younger Niebuhr, Richard Niebuhr, has written a book, A Critique of Historical Reason. Many of them make appeal to this. This is a brilliant book by a relatively young man in which he says what we need today is this. As Kant wrote his critique of pure reason and of practical reason and of the judgment, we need now to realize that man is inherently historic or historical. And so we need a critique of historical reason. And then he refers to Wilhelm Dilthey of the middle 19th century. And he refers in a, in a special sense also to Robert Collingwood. Collingwood is, a is extraordinarily influence, influential in our day. He wrote a book, as you know, on the idea of history and another book on the idea of nature. And Bultmann admits or claims that he, in addition to getting help from, from Heidegger, got help also from Collingwood. Now, my reason for saying this is that Collingwood is much better known to us than Heidegger and much easier to read. His idea of history is a very readable, easily readable book. And in it, he says, there is no such thing as authority for us. The historical consciousness is sufficient to itself in the way that Kant said that the rational consciousness is sufficient for it, to itself. And it must judge when it hears of such a thing as Jesus claiming that he was the Son of God. It must make that thing reasonable to itself. It must be able to re-experience such a statement or otherwise it means nothing. Now, it is this existentialist philosophy and this kind of philosophy of history which underlies recent 
present day, much of present day theology. Well, then Macquarie speaks of three phases of development of recent theological thinking. And these phases run parallel to development of recent science and its course when you had in the early part of this century the reaction on the part of Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore against F.H. Bradley and Bernard Bolzenkett against the idealists and against every Hegelian type of absolute. So we have now, he says, in the first phase, we have personal idealism, and incidentally there is, as you know, Boston personalism. I was there for a week one time, of course, and I asked them, how come that you modernist, streamlined, conscientized Methodist ask a rock-ribbed Calvinist to come and speak to you? Well, I wrote to him also before coming and asked what I might speak on, and they suggested, the secretary did, that I should speak on Boston personalism. That, in other words, he didn't want me to take some peripheral subject. I'd, he just wanted me to tell them what, how Boston personalism looked to a rock-ribbed, old-fashioned Calvinist. Well, I did. <laughs> I hope... I hope, suaviter in modo, fortiter in re. Well, that's the way we always have to do it, to be courteous and kind in our manner, but uncompromising in thought. Well, now Boston personalism is a movement in this country of philosophy, very influential in its past philosophers, among them, for instance, Brightman, who greatly influenced Edward John Curnell, in his thinking, they feel that it is the person, per se, the person interpreted by philosophy, by existentialist philosophy, by a post-Kantian type of personalism that can tell you who man is and what he needs. And there's, there's where Mr. King got his, his point of view, and he says he did. Well, now, that comes right out of Kant's critique of pure reason. It is modern. They are streamlined, modernist personalists. They are not historic Christian, and it is, of course, a wonderful thing from their point of view that their historic Methodism, with its notion of free will, finds a modern view of philosophy and of theology that fits in with their autonomy of the will idea. Now, as far then as my friend John Macquarie is concerned, I think he's coming over to our seminary this winter to have a little Aus ein Andersetzung, which we're looking, we're looking forward to, suaviter in modo, I trust. Well, we have to have those things, do we not? We must. Well, he also speaks of the recent turnover but he speaks of the gathering together of the main schools of thinking into a unified outlook, which is to say largely gathering around this notion of the I-thou dimension, the personal dimension, and the I-it dimension, which is the dimension of science, and we don't want to reduce man, the person, to the field of science. 
Now, the great merits, as Macquarie, of the historical and cultural approaches to Christian theology, which he says is the recent approach, is that they deliver us from parochialism. The Christian religion is seen in the context of the whole spiritual development of man. And therefore, when orthodoxy comes along, and it does not want to interpret Christianity in line with and make it cons consonant with the total evolutionary spiritual development of the human race, then we will have none of it. In other words, the assumption is that whatever theology you may have, it must be a theology that fits in with the scientific and philosophical interpretation of man and his cultural, historical environment independent of theology already. Now then, he has this book also on the studies of existentialism, and I'll skip that and go on to his question of the scope of demythologizing. That naturally, that expression comes from Bultmann. How far can we go with demythologizing the gospel and still have something left? Well, that's the question. Have you got anything left? What is there left in the way of kerygma, in the way of gospel, if you throw away the traditional construction? Now, of course, it's a caricature of the historic Christian position to talk about this three-story universe. It's a misinterpretation in the first place of science, because science is not today a matter of determinism, it's the imposition, the idea of the imposition of the subject's category on a chance universe. So there's contingency built right into science. But let that be as it may, at any rate, theology wants to be in consonance with this modern science and in consonance with modern philosophy, which is also anti-metaphysical and which therefore no longer talks about an absolute only to say, except to say that nobody can talk about any such thing as a God who prior to his creation has planned to have a creation and to redeem a people to himself in this world. Well, now this prepares us for what is meant today by the new quest for the historical Jesus. What Macquarie is doing is making his own quest he says that recently the tendency has been, in the case of Barth, in the case of Bultmann and also of others, to do away with history practically altogether, to reduce the gospel to Geschichte, to existence of person to person without any information and without anything said about this world at all. Well... If you make the gospel thus wholly other, well, between people who live together in that holy other world, where there is no communication between one and the other because each lives in silence apart from the other, as, as several modern theologians have pointed out, then how can you say that you have any gospel that anybody can know anything about? So the problem is, to take the gospel, the kerygma of that holy other world, and to bring it in some sort of contact with this world. Now, there was 
some years ago, a number of years ago, in fact, Mark, in 1892 already, Martin Kaler, who made a criticism of the historical Jesus, the Sogananta, the so-called historical Jesus, and he said, the Christ of the Scriptures. Now, Martin Kaler was a modern theologian, and he took this position, which has been subsequently developed by many others, that, strictly speaking, you can know nothing about the historic Christ at all, because whatever takes place in ordinary history is relative to the human mind. Kant has taught us that, and we have learned it well. Therefore, we don't any longer expect any absolute revelation in this world of what he calls history. This world is the world where chance material is organized by a mind that is not the created mind of God, not by a creature, but by a self, subsistent and autonomous mind, which has developed categories of logic, and therefore it imposes or impresses those categories upon chance material. I do that when I put some water in the tray, take the tray out of the refrigerator, and I fill the tray with water, and then I put that divider in. Now the water, of course, it has this container. Now if you have no container of any sort, if there were no bottom and no shore to this ocean, now I can make ice cubes, don't you see, because I have freezing capacity through this box, and I can put a divider in this water and then put on the current, and it freezes. And then when I take them out, mirable dictu, then I've got ice cubes for my water. <laughs> Nothing else. <laughs> Don't you see? I got ice cubes. They're all the same size, very close to being perfectly identical to one another. Now, that is the effort of modern science, even pre-conscient science. Bacon wanted little simple entities none of which you could see. What you see is individuals. They're entities, all right, but they're not little teeny-weeny, simple entities. And by mathematical manipulation, you are supposed to be able to get an absolute exhaustive interrelationship and explanation of them. Well, now, ideally, that's still the case with post-conscient science, even though post-conscient science, on the basis of Kant's insistence that contingency underlies everything, doesn't pretend that it, in any actual process or uh, distance of time, whether a hundred years or a million years, it can accomplish this. There's still the idea of exhaustive interpretation, the way Parmenides thought that you can say that only that which I can say logically can exist. Well, that's pure determinism, pure rationalism, but it is now in post-Kantian times made correlative to pure indeterminism. And you now speak of a limiting concept, a grenzbegriff, so that science is this forever ongoing movement of a growing bit of island of chance on an o of uh, ice on an ocean of boiling chance. Well, now theology has built itself Philosophy has built upon this concept of science, and theology builds upon philosophy. It is as though you had a ship that has all kinds of holes in it, it underwater, and it's that science, and then you have philosophy, the first and second decks, 
and then theology says, I'm, we must be in consonance with modern science and with modern philosophy. So it builds its decks on top of science, and then they sink all together. <laughs> well, that's not ridiculing anybody as far as their ability is concerned. I'm just concerned, my friends, to point out to you that the way that we as Christians must approach the situation be anxious that we shall bring the light of the gospel into this situation. We can't expect anybody else to do it. We only who have inherited from the reformers and notably from Calvin and then through Kuyper and through Fallenhoven and Doyewert this insight into the breadth and depth and penetrating power of the gospel that it can light up this darkness and say, my friend, don't do this. You are going to perish and your works will perish with you. But build on the self-identifying Christ through whom the worlds are made, by whom they are sustained, through whom there is order, in whose image you are made, and then your efforts in science, in philosophy, and in theology will be fruitful to his glory, and then your works, when you pass out of this scene, will follow after you. Well, now, then we have these three men. We turn now, then, to the quest, the new quest, for the historical Jesus. You remember this series of books, New Frontiers in Theology. There's one of them by James Robinson, A New Quest of the Historical Jesus. Now, this young man, Robinson, is a son of William Childs Robinson, who taught for many years at Columbia Seminary in the South. He's a brilliant man. He's equal to any of the brilliant German theologians and philosophers, and they recognize him as such. Well, now, what is this new quest trying to do? Why should there have to be a new quest? Well, because the historical Jesus was lost, practically lost. Now, Macquarie thinks that he can bring back something of it. He says we have a minimal core of historical reality. Now, my friends, look at this minimal core of historical reality, which he thinks connects the kerygma of that other world with this world. You can't depend on the Gospels as they are written. Of course not. Negative criticism, foreign criticism has told us better than that. You can't be sure of the words of Jesus, and suppose you were sure of the words of Jesus. After all, Jesus was a man, and therefore he is, as a man, involved, immersed with us in this same bottomless ocean of contingency. Orthodoxy knows nothing of that. It has no vision for the depth in which the Son of God has come into this world to be one with us. It is docetic, orthodoxy is. It keeps him safely at a distance in a rowboat from getting his feet wet. But we have a Christ who immerses himself with us and therefore can save us out of this mess, this pool of iniquity. Well, now, now this Jesus, however, has been virtually lost in Karl Barth, say these men. Now, some of us have said that a long time, and people have objected to it when we Orthodox people, some of us, say this. 
For instance, there have been those that have argued that Karl Barth really believes in a historical resurrection. Well, and then, of course, it is pointed out that he uses such words as Stasbar, Herbar, Fielbar. Well, of course, that refers to this world. And, of course, that means that in this sense there is something in the realm of history in connection. But for Barth, the real resurrection is Geschichte, and he has said that in every one of his major publications. And now these men, Niebuhr, and these men looking for the new and the new quest, they recognize this fact that Barth has taken Christ out of history and has put him up there where he cannot speak to man and where he is utterly unknowable. Now, therefore, they are renewing this quest. They said, well, modernism was, of course, a failure because it reduced Jesus to a nice historical man after the pattern of 19th century cultural man, the way he wanted an ideal man. But that was a failure. Now we reacted against that, and neo-orthodoxy, Karl Barth, the leader, first of all, in his Rema brief, said, Hinaus with modernism. And Bultmann at the same time said the same thing in Brunner, and there was a, a group of theologians who cooperated and agreed that we must have, we must follow Schweitzer, the quest for the historical Jesus, and say he is, his message is eschatological, his existence is eschatological, but we must go even much beyond Schweitzer and others who have sought for Jesus in that other realm. But you remember, Barth sought in vain once he said that Jesus is essentially that holy other one, which can be seen if seen anywhere, everywhere. In the Romans, epistle to the Romans, he definitely asserts that whether you know only Plato or know something of the New Testament, it makes no difference. Because in any case, you're in contact with the real Christ. Well, now, in his later writings, his latest writings, certainly, Barth has stressed that more than ever. If he was nominalist in his earlier writings, he is realist more so in his later writings. But it's always been a pendulum swing between the two. And Brunner's pendulum has been the same sort of pendulum, only it hasn't swung quite as widely. You remember that a number of years ago, Brunner and Barth separated when Brunner wanted to speak of an under Aufgabe, a second task of theology, apologetics, we must, to be sure, listen to what God says, as he says at Sinkrecht von Oben. But we must also speak to the man, to the cultural consciousness of the age. And then Barth wrote his famous pamphlet, Nein, lieber Freund. No, we must only listen to das erste Gebot, the first commandment, what God has said regardless of science, regardless of philosophy, and that has made many an evangelical think that Barth is really basing the whole of his theology on the scriptures as a finished revelation, and nothing is further from the truth than that, because as the subsequent development has proved beyond the peradventure of a doubt that he has turned now to a universalistic, a realistic swing, but it is still a swing correlative to to 
this nominalistic. And now Brunner doesn't want to swing that far. He says, Lieber Freund Bart, where are you going now? Now you make everybody into Christ, and you get everybody saved and automatically saved, whether they have faith or have not faith. So what's the place for faith? So Brunner's pendulum swings this far, Bart swings that far. How much misunderstanding there has been of these men on the part of evangelical Christians. Some have said Brunner is nearer to us than is Bart because he believes creation ordinances, he believes common grace and all of that. Others have said Bart is nearer to us because Brunner rejects the virgin birth, Bart accepts it. Well, the only possible way of understanding what these things mean is to realize that neither Bart nor Brunner works on historic orthodox presuppositions and that therefore their words mean something radically different. And now finally let me speak of Jürgen Moltmann. Again, the evangelicals tend to misunderstand him. He has a book, a famous book, Theology of Hope, and he says all reality is eschatological. Jesus was eschatological, and he is similar to Pannenberg in this respect, that he too makes much of the resurrection. But he once more ties in this resurrection with the common consciousness of mankind which has looked always look forward to a life hereafter. In ancient times, Socrates and his associates were asking about immortality, and Socrates, when he was about to drink the hemlock cup, and he sent Santippe, his wife, away, you can't have women around when you're going to die, and he had Simeus and Cebes and his other disciples with him, and they asked one another, the ship was coming, and he was rubbing his ankles because the chains had been on his ankles. What will happen when this poison comes to my heart and I am no more? Well, he thought that somehow there would be, but there would be a reabsorption of himself, of his intellect, in the idea of life. So if he were immortal, it wouldn't be Socrates anymore as an individual that would be immortal. And so, don't you see, Moltmann is once more depending on this general notion of immortality, which non-Christian speculation has already thought out for itself. And then Christ's resurrection is one instance of that. And he appeals, of course, to 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul speaks of the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of them that sleep. Now, my friends, in conclusion, I want to plead with you that we do not try to meet this situation with the traditional method of apologetics, such as comes out of the Roman Catholic background, Thomas Aquinas, and has been brought into conservative Protestant circles by way of Bishop Butler's book on analogy, and then it was brought into many, many other circles. It was taught in my day at Princeton Seminary. The reason why we must not do this has always been plain, as it seems to me, but if it hasn't been plain in the past, it certainly ought to be obvious now, because don't you see that if you start with him on his basis, 
thinking that's some measure, some area of interpretation that he has given in terms of his principles is right, then he can carry you forward if you are logic, willing to think logically with him. He's got you already. You are then his victim. What we should rather do is that which is involved, as I see it, in the historic Christian biblical reform faith, namely that we shall do what Jesus did when he said to the Pharisees, as we saw the other night, that he doesn't argue with them about details of the, of the Old Testament. He doesn't quest, talk about natural theology, but he says, I am the Son of God and Son of Man. And you will misunderstand the Old Testament, you specialists in the Old Testament, unless you see that all that Moses and the prophets spake of me. Then we see all things lit up, which does not mean that we see all things exhaustively and understand all things. No, it does not. But then at least we have foundation under our feet. On the other traditional basis, we jump into a leaky boat with those that are sinking and sink with them, unless by the grace of God we, turn, we are drawn out again. And so the hour has come in the providence of God, I think, that we should bethink ourselves whether we should not work up for ourselves a genuine reformed apologetics as we have by the grace of God been given through Bavink and Kuiper and Berkhauer and others a truly genuine Reformed theology. And it is by the grace of God that we may all contribute to that. I think something wonderful is before us. We don't know what the future will be, but we know that all around us is darkness. Men without God, without hope in the world, they have no anchor for their souls. The only place the only place of refuge. And the only gospel is the gospel that Peter and John brought when they said this is the only name given under heaven by which they must be saved. And that holds for theology. That holds for philosophy. That holds for science. If our total interpretive enterprise is not to sink to the bottom of meaninglessness and rest under the curse of God at that, then we must Make it to rest upon him who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Dr. Ventil. We have canceled the chapel exercises that will normally come at this time in order that we can devote more time to questions, and so we are now opening the floor to questions from you in the audience. Yes, Reverend Moose. Dr. Ventil, uh, these men seem to think that they have popsicles instead of ice cubes. Uh, what is the sweetener that they seem to find or think they find? Can you comment on that? You used to call me Case, and I used to call you Herman. Now you call me Dr. Ventil, so I'll call you the Reverend Moose. <laughs> well, I don't know that I quite get the question. Will you just expound a little bit 
Uh, Why is this so attractive to them? Oh, well, I would say it's attractive to anybody who is trying, not in self fully self-conscious hatred of God, but in self-deception. I think every man knows it at bottom. You know you came from Highland, Indiana, and I came from Highland, Indiana, and I can't get rid of that knowledge all my life. I was in the Orient. And I tried to make them believe that I was an Oriental. And I couldn't make them believe it. But worse, I couldn't make myself believe it. Now, you see, nobody in the world can make himself believe that he's not a creature of God. Non to ston theon. But he wants to try because he wants to justify his hostility. The natural man, as Paul says, is, is at enmity against God. He doesn't only not know God, but he also hates God. And so he wants to make some sort of rationalization, I would say, for his unbelief and for this opposition. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm judging any individual man that he knows, look, I hate God and I hate this and all of that. But I think they are self-deceived, the God of this world has deceived and blinded the minds of men that they understand not the truth. And, of course, ultimately is in the disposition of God. Men believe not, though many miracles, the truth is before them, have been before the, has been before them all the time. They are in the final ordination of God's plan. You sin against that plan. And it is God that finally, through Christ and his Holy Spirit, has to give you faith. Now, if you think of that, then the gift of God's grace becomes much more marvelous than it has ever been before. Said Bunyan, you remember, there but for the grace of God am I when he saw the dominoes. Well, there but for the grace of God am I. Now, therefore, we should be always careful not to take an attitude of looking down upon others as though we have discovered this thing for ourselves. We are given this thing by grace and by grace we must live and we must in all humility but also in all boldness in other words we mustn't be so humble falsely humble that we don't present the claims of the Christ now I don't know if that's fully answered your question in one of your syllabus you made a connection between rationalism and irrationalism I wonder if you could trace how that these two are really together uh, because of presuppositions and how the irrationalism and rationalism are very much the same thing, although they, they appear to be quite different. Well, that gives me one more chance, one last chance to get one of my pet ideas across, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> you see, I think that we ought to go frankly back to Adam and Eve, and that's why to me, without an historical Adam, you don't have any foundation true foundation uh, for historic Christianity. That is, there's where rationalism, irrationalism. But it started with the idea of man's disobedience, his listening to the devil, and therefore assuming his autonomy. All right, now then, that idea of autonomy meant that he would regard what God said and what Satan said as on a par with one another. What God said was one hypothesis to man, what Satan said was an other hypothesis. You see, that was immediately involved. Now, that's irrationalism. 
In other words, that was as much as to say, God, you don't know what will... For instance, you don't know what's in this binder, except in a general way, but I know what's on page 62 over here, the dilemma of recent theology. You don't, because you haven't written it. Well, God had ordained this thing, had he not? He was in a position... Somebody said to me yesterday that when I used the illustration of the McGee closet, nobody understood me anymore. Is th are there no more McGee closets? Oh, that's very sad. You know, Molly, McGee, and there was the McGee closet, and you put all the junk that you couldn't have, didn't want anybody to see, into that one closet. Well... Don't you see? God is together with us, dumped into the ocean of irrational of contingency. He's no longer in a position to know what's in the McGee closet. And so he can't tell Adam, do this and you shall live, do that. That's out. Now, that's irrationalism. But he couldn't be an irrationalist of that sort unless at the same time he were a rationalist, unless in advance of experience he was willing to make Satan's hypothesis the absolute one so that he was willing to stake his life on the idea that the devil was right and God was wrong. Well, that's rationalism, I would say. So irrationalism and rationalism are like two rafters, I would say, in a house. You never have the one without the other. You have in the history of thought movements, which are primarily at least called rationalistic. You have Parmenides, you have Spinoza and Leibniz. They're called rationalists. But you, and you have others today, particularly irrationalists. But don't you see, in the greatest of irrationalisms, you take Sartre, as I used them before as an illustration, who is certainly an irrationalist. Well, he is so much of a rationalist that he makes universal negative statements. For instance, the logical analysts in philosophy, they are rationalists, but they are also trying to be empirical in their way. And so men, I would say, are both rationalists and irrationalists always at the same time because they rest their thinking on human autonomy. And the only way to cure that is to repent of your idea of autonomy and simply interpret yourself in terms of God's revelation scripture. And then you don't anymore try exhaustively to understand all things, logicize the whole of the content of scripture by a system of truth from which you can deduce this point. The tendency to do that is always with us. The, the, for instance, the Armenian says, uh, the Bible says uh, man is a fr has freedom, he's responsible. Therefore, there can't be any counsel of God that determines everything. Percy Crawford, anybody remembers Percy Crawford? He was one of our earliest students. He had, in many years, a radio program. Well, he wrote, he was a junior with us, first year of the seminary, and he wrote me a nice term paper comparing... Calvin's views with the scripture on the question of election. So he wrote out a whole series of whosoever will passages out of the Bible. I knew them too. And <laughs> then he says, Calvin teaches determinism. The Bible says whosoever will. Calvin is wrong. Now that's logicism and that's rationalism. Now the difficulty with Dr. or Professor Hooksma formerly was in a way similar. He said, I recall it as a student when I was at the seminary here, that God cannot have at any point of history any attitude of favor to any man. Therefore, 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 
It can't be common grace. Well, that's not how we exegete the scriptures. We have to supplement one concept with the other, and therefore we have to have Christian limiting concepts on Christian presuppositions. We have, in modern times, non-Christian limiting concepts based on the non-Christian, mostly the Kantian, assumption of human autonomy, which is the idea that you have exhaustive rationality as an ideal and then exhaustive irrationality as a fact and that you go on forever and ever and nobody knows anything and that's why Karl Barth's theology is to the effect that God is wholly known and wholly revealed and wholly unknown when he is wholly revealed and that's characteristic of your modern dialectical theologians. <laughs> Will you expound that a little further? I don't know much about Sitzem Leben. <laughs> I mean, I don't know actually too much what is done in that direction. Uh, let him explain. Were you going to help him? Well, okay. Will you let him say? You said before the uh, three-story universe was a misinterpretation of the orthodox position. And then later on, you said that the modern theologians paint orthodoxy as Christ in a rowboat, saved from getting his feet wet. And this was in connection with literary criticism, form criticism, and making Christ in the world as a man. Now, I think what he's getting at is what do we know of the Christ as a man? This is uh, I'm not concerned about that primarily. Behind it, we are concerned with the view of the Word of God. How do we arrive at meaning from the Bible in terms of what are we going to preach about? Now, what we have to get at is, is the meaning of the Gospel. Yes. A lot of people, before we go, I'll say, you have to get back into the historical situation of, the, of that century. You have to realize that, that Peter and Paul, or whoever wrote about it, wrote in terms of his view of life in that day. We have to realize that behind this, there is yeah, the core of the gospel somehow. It comes out of this, this thing of hope in some way. Now, now our reform people today, at least some of them, try to apply this well, I think it is true what you're suggesting, that some of our Reformed theologians are trying to do that sort of thing. Now, I tend much more to be very simple and to follow Calvin, I think Kuiper, Bobbing, and I don't think you have those basically basic difficulties. I don't think our older preachers had much trouble to communicate. Uh, what is it? It's the Bible that interprets man. You don't actually have a sitzem leven that is already interpreted, a historical situation. And the apostles didn't bring the gospel in terms of a philosophy of life which they got from that historical situation. Now, every human being is basically the same throughout all ages, is he not? He's a creature made in the image of God. He's a sinner under the wrath of God because of his sin. We must offer him the gospel of salvation through Christ who died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Now, I would say a child can understand that, and it isn't hard to present it. 
Now, that doesn't mean we can present it exhaustively, and I don't care whether you want to change your language. If you can, I can't. I just preach the same old way. And I don't think there is any uh, new problem has developed. Bobbing knew all about the historic, historical relativism, as it is called, and he didn't seem to see any basic difficulty in that at all. You just present the same old gospel in the same old way, but now that isn't quite what you want. Oh. Well, ask him. Is it what you want or isn't it? The problem we do have, though, very removed from the times of the gospel writing writing in 2,000 years almost. Yes. And from the Old Testament more than that. Those men, I mean, we speak of the Bible as the Word of God. We speak of Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And yet we have to now arrive at the meaning of, of, of the Scriptures. And our men, men like Goldman are saying, well, then you have to get back to their situation and realize what they were preaching to before you can understand really what you are preaching to today. Well, they were preaching to creatures who are sinners. That's what you have to do. And I would say that, now maybe that isn't what you want, but that's all I can give you. Let me pick up on that. You say preach to men as sinners. But aren't they different in their sins, sure. in their problems, in that particular situation, than the people we're preaching to? Sure, and that's why a good minister takes the Word of God with all its implications, and he has patience, and he sits down with people, and he talks over their problems, usko at nauseam. And he is willing to talk with them and, and in their language and, and so forth. But don't you see that still is preaching the same gospel he is a creature. When you talk, sit down with somebody who's got this problem and it's a marital problem and it's divorce and my husband wants to leave me or it's this or that or the other. Well, it all springs from sin. Now, and this is a special manifestation of it. And then there are all kinds, you should use psychiatric help maybe. You should use all kinds of helps that may be available but they all should be subordinate, I would say, to the fact that what you must bring him or her to realize that they are creatures and sinners that can be saved if they repent by the blood of Christ. Um, would you say that C.S. Lewis's apologetics, which he gives in understanding, uh, would you say his apologetics is entirely on the opposite side of the orthodox sense? Not entirely in the opposite. I would say C.S. Lewis... I would think of him as an evangelical Christian as far as his theology is concerned. I don't think that his book on Beyond Personality shows that very well. He talks about being lifted up from bios to zoe, uh, which is virtually an evolutionary hypothesis and all of that. But my difficulty with C.S. Lewis, for all his brilliance, I like his screw tape letters and I like his uh, children's stories and I like his, all of his books. But I think his book, for instance, on miracle is an application of the historic Butler analogy type of argument. And for that reason, to that extent, I think it's unfortunate that he doesn't use it better. But he's never learned the meaning and the existence and the meaning of the Reformed faith. That's quite obvious. But he still, he still has a truth of Scripture, you would say, in his politics and in, in the the way he goes about it. He is. <coughs> is he? 
I'm not saying that. No, I mean, I'm not saying he's not a Christian, nor am I saying there's no Christianity in his thinking. But he's, Arminianism isn't true to Scripture, so far as it is based on the idea of autonomy. So he holds certainly not to the Reformed faith. And so I can't, without qualifications, you see, say yes to what you are saying. Uh, uh, way back, uh, you'll come to you in a minute. the burden of proof would be upon you to show how it differs, how Kierkegaard's God, his philosophy, his methodology is, is essentially the same. Now, he reacts against Hegel, Hegel's monistic dialecticism, and his is a dualistic dialecticism, but he is quite opposed to the idea of a direct revelation of God in history, don't you see? And then he brings into probability the disciples at first hand were no better off than we are. We are as well off. In other words, it's mainly mysticism. Now, you remember that Karl Barth's first book on Romans, he says, is based upon Kierkegaard's principle of the qualitative difference between God and man. In other words, that absolute otherness. Well, I think that is not Orthodox Christianity. I'm not saying these men are not Christians, understand. Yes, I think Bart gets that essentially from Kierkegaard. He says he does, doesn't he, in his Romer brief. Romer brief. Uh, you're an apologist, and uh, you've been talking about the modernists. Now, I'm just wondering how you communicate... You know, you, uh, you've given indications of this in your, uh, in your in your speech, but how would you communicate uh, as an apologist to modernists in general, in, in defense of the gospel? Method? You just present the gospel uh, as it is, and then let them take it that way, or how do you uh, enter into a conversation with people? Try to expose their presuppositions? Or, or well, I would first take them out for coffee. <laughs> and if necessary for dinner, and they want a second cup of coffee, suave terremoto. Very well. We're seated here around the coffee table. I sat around at the Notre Dame in Paris with a man from the University of California at Los Angeles, and he said, "You don't." He says most preachers use weasel words. He said. They say we all mean the same thing. You don't seem to think so. No, I says, I think we ought to shoot each other, but we ought to do it politely. <laughs> and in other words, people are much more impressed by a simple, straightforward presentation. Now, you're not helping a man that's very sick. You got the remedy, we'll say, and you're a physician. How do you communicate? Well... You know the, the situation of that person as that person himself or herself does not know it. I mean, say, like, oh, I got a stomachache. 
and I think I ought to have an aspirin or a buffer. Oh, no, anison is right. Uh, that's much better. At any rate, some external medicine. What you need, you say to him, I'm sorry, madam, you have to do it politely, but you need to be rushed to the hospital and you go to the telephone and you call up for a room. Now, I say to this friend of ours, as I did to this person and to others, look, uh, what do you think man is? What do you think? You don't, this is the historic gospel. This particular man was brought up by an orthodox believing mother. But even if they haven't, you explain to them what the gospel is. Now, they react, we'll say, negatively to that. All right, then I say, well, you make your reaction intelligible to me. And what do you stand in order to oppose this? In other words, when, he's, when you're going to move an iceberg, you remember the old Greek said, Dwa ma pousto, give me something on which to stand and I'll move, give me leverage and I'll move the world. Now, on what do you stand? Well, then I give him a few hours. Let's come back tomorrow, as much time as we have, and let's talk this over again. On what does he stand? Well, he's got to make plain to me that he has an intelligible view of man, cogito ergo sum, Descartes. Well, when we look at that, and then we look at the existentialist view of man, and we find every time we look at it, and you help him to see it for himself by analyzing it for him, as he hasn't ever done, likely, because he doesn't want to do it. So you say to him, look, this thing falls apart, doesn't it? You have an abstract universal ideal. You have pure contingent factuality. You are made up of the combination of the two. You have to ride off simultaneously on the same horse in opposite directions. You're being absorbed into the absolute when you want to be rational, if you reach your ideal. And when you're afraid of being absorbed, then you go back, and then you're being absorbed by the pure contingency. So your conception of man is certainly not intelligible, is it? Well, he won't admit it. Is that the answer? Oh, well, and so with respect to fact. Now, you're a scientist, I say to him. Will you show me how you discover facts? You can ask him, what are you doing for your doctoral dissertation or master's? In other words, I would seek my point of contact always with what they are doing where they are. Have them tell about their wife and their sweetheart and their family first and the weather. And then... Tell him, have you, them tell you about his work. And then you ask him, now, how do you, what do you mean to do and what are you accomplishing? And how are you relating facts to universals? How are you getting coherence in your experience? I go round and round with him. And when I've gone around with him for a long, long time, as long as he wants to, and he will never succeed in making intelligible in terms of his principles what he is doing or who he is. Now, then... It's a little bit, that doesn't prove Christianity in his sense of the term. But then we always depend on the Holy Spirit, even in preaching, don't we? Do we not? That they will, the Holy Spirit will use us in preaching to tell sinners who won't admit they're sinners that they are sinners. Well, then we tell people that they are holding to a purely nonsensical, purely irrational position and that, that's the only alternative to, the, to uh, accepting, by grace, this place which they must come to and which they must accept on the authority of the word of Christ. I've had lots of occasions to do that, as I suppose all of you have. 
at a young girl. You do it according to the stage of culture people are in. I had a man across the street. I mowed the lawn for him in early days. He got sick. He died. Yes, I believe there's some sort of something up there, he says. Well, I said, Mr. So-and-so, there is the God who created you up there, and soon you will meet him as your judge in Christ, and you must repent now. Well, that's the simple man. Then there was a girl of high school, high school girl, a daughter of a medical doctor. She knew too much. And uh, I sat in a culvert with her at a young people's conference. She was awfully, awfully cocky. She had the world by the tail. All right. And that was a question of showing her that, that she had no strength at all. She was going to disintegrate. She was going to live maybe until 70 or 80 or thereabouts. But how did then she, she know then what's next? There was a German uh, exchange student at Princeton. He says, Ich habe keine metaphysische Bedürfnis, he says. I said, haben Sie eine physische Bedürfnis? Do you have a physical need? you go to the club to eat? Yes, jawohl. How many more years? Methuselah, are you going to be older than Methuselah? Even if you are, you will die. And then what? Where's your next breakfast coming from? Well, the point being that nobody can escape the fact of death and face it. He must, whether he's young or old. And that therefore he has to face the question, will he enter into death with what he now holds to when he himself can see that there's no meaning to life on his presupposition? Well, there was the young girl from San Francisco to Los Angeles. We sat next to each other, assigned seats, by the way. Uh, uh, we had assigned seats. And she didn't say a thing, and I didn't say a thing first. But then when the conductor took up our tickets, and mine was a clergy, she looked at me and she said, Are you a clergyman? Yeah, well, I said yes. And then we had, I was from Redlands then for that year. Are you from Redlands? Yes. So we had an Anknüpfungspunkt. <laughs> Don't you see? You can always find a point of contact if you are interested. And then she says, and so you're a minister? What can you tell men? And no, I says, I don't have a church. I'm teaching at a seminary, trying to ta train young men for the gospel ministry. What can you tell young men for the ministry that hasn't been disproved by science. Well, then the fat was in the fire. <laughs> Wasn't it? Of course it was. From, Los, from San Francisco to Los Angeles, we talked with interruptions. And when I left, or she left, she shook hands with me. She says, nobody has ever challenged me with the gospel in this way. Well, I could go on with that. In other words, you must do it according to the stage of training, education, non People never been to school, high school, college. But you can do it, and you can take the most learned person and sit down with him, and he can tell you all about his project. And you listen patiently always. But the time comes when he has to come to basic issues of which he knows nothing any more than you. The most learned man knows nothing more of the issues of life and death than any of us do. Well, Mr. Chairman, allow me once more to thank you most heartily and to thank all of you for your kind patience. I've had a wonderful time. Someday you all come to Westminster Seminary and visit us.